good morning, afternoon, or evening, and welcome to the Bloody Disgusting Network. The following show is just horrifying. Beware. You're obsessed with her, and you're obsessed with her daughter! All right, easy, Geraldo. And welcome back to Horror Queers. We're talking Black Sheep and Mama's Boy. We're talking former It Girl, Lily Sobieski. And we're talking Reds and D-Focus. And I'm Joe. And I'm Trace. And we're talking... Candy cane. <laughs> Candy cane. I'm glad you got that out of the way early because I feel like it's compulsory. If you're going to talk about this movie, you got to do a Ted Levine impersonation. You know, I was going to I was going to go. We're talking two beautiful butts, but you didn't do Candy Cane. So I was like, OK, I guess I'm going to do it. <laughs> so we're getting Candy Cane and two beautiful butts, y'all, because we are talking Joyride, the 2001 road trip suspense thriller movie thing. Yes, it is all of those things, especially mm. the thing. Yeah. Especially the thing. Yeah, it is that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's the 20th anniversary of the film this week. So we thought, well, shit, we've only talked about one Paul Walker movie this year. So let's bring him back for a second. And didn't you point out to me, too, we're on our third Ted Levine movie of the year? <laughs> <laughs> yes, so we have talked about the Silence of the Lambs on the main feed, and then folks, we also did a delightful audio commentary on the Patreon feed for the Hills Have Eyes remake. If only we had discussed The Glass House earlier this year, then we'd be on our second Lily Sobieski movie as well. Okay, so here's the cold hard truth, and <laughs> this could be a trace at 2327 for uh. Candyman situation. I watched The Glass House in theaters and fucking hated it, mm -hmm. and I have never gone back and revisited it, so I could be completely wrong, but I just feel like that movie is a huge piece of shit. So I did see it in theaters. Um, okay. I would have been 12 at the time. Right. And I did not like it either. But right. <laughs> I think she is good. Like, I've actually always really enjoyed Lily Sobieski. She's an unusual actress, and I can't even put my finger on why I say that. But I think she's often great, and I think she often appears in bad stuff. I think she's underused. I mean, like, what, what I know her most from, besides Joyride, is never being kissed. Like, that. that yeah. is my, like, you know, she's the kind of nerdy girl who, like, they try to play a prank on her, blah, 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 mm -hmm. blah. But she friends drew barrymore with glass house the only thing i remember it's her little brother is played by the kid from jurassic park 3 and all he does is say sweet sweet oh every mm. other second um <laughs> and then i mean spoiler alert y'all but um it's stellan skarsgård and diane lane are the yes. parents i'm sorry the guardians right and i remember being so mad that diane lane kills herself via like an overdose in like oh. the beginning of act three so it's really just oh it's Stellan Skarsgård killing the kids because she couldn't handle the guilt because she's a frail woman I mean oh that's my memory of it mm -hmm. <laughs> from like me seeing it back in 2001 because I also have not seen it since okay nevertheless Joyride much better movie Yes, and even though I do feel like she is a little underutilized in this film I think when she is there she's doing great work I, I do agree. I mean, she, she basically, she's in the first scene of this movie, and then mm -hmm. she is pretty much a wall until the midway point. Indeed. Yeah, it's an interesting structure. Uh, definitely on par with a lot of other road rage slash driving, however mm -hmm. you want to call this, highway horror. They often end up breaking the film into two halves. 
it's almost a way to say, okay, we're going to give you a big car chase or some big action set piece, and then we're going to pause and we're going to let the tension decrease, and then we will build it back up in the second half. So I feel like when she shows up, you're like, oh, okay, now we're into the back half. We're going to start to ramp this up again. Yes. It does kind of do the whole thing where it's like, oh, she's a damsel in distress again. Yeah. But like, it, it does refrain from doing that at least up until the very end. Like, she, it's not like she yeah. shows up and then boom, she's kidnapped immediately, right? No, that's her friend, Charlotte, instead. Yes, who that poor girl who gets one scene in this movie, minus her, you know, rescue at the end. Yeah. <laughs> it's my big break, mom. Oh, shit. I read the script, never mind. I really hope uh, her three or four seasons on Dr. Queen Medicine Woman um, paved the way for her, because uh, this is pretty much, uh, th that's what she's known for, and then this. <laughs> wow. Well, Charlotte, it was good to see you, however briefly. Oh, man. But honestly, I mean, you know, I have seen this movie a handful of times, but funnily enough, and yeah, mm -hmm. I know, like, you know, I go on my nostalgia trips every now and then, but... Oh, just every once in a while, yeah. I know, I know, but you know, it, 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 this is a movie, so again, I, this came out the same year as The Glass House, which um, I will have uh, thoughts about that movie again when we talk about this movie's box office performance, but okay. I would have been 12, so I was not allowed to watch this movie because it is, in fact, rated R, which, mm -hmm. not even, I mean, they say fuck a few times, and they say pussy a few times, but yeah, it's not that bloody, and so... I, it's scary, though. Okay, yes, but right, that's when we kind of get into weird shit. That's like the conjuring shit where it's like, it's too scary for a PG-13, so we gotta mm -hmm. slap it with an R. Like, what? Movies? Mm -hmm. No. <laughs> anyway, I have a distinct memory. My dad's brother, my uncle, was visiting, and my parents rented this from Blockbuster, and uh, I guess my sister and I had our own movie that we were watching upstairs, and I just remember, um, so like, when I walked out of my childhood bedroom, the, like, the upstairs balcony like, overlooked the downstairs living room. So I could see people down there watching the TV, but I couldn't see the TV because it was angled away from where I was sitting upstairs. Okay. This scene in the cornfield when he kidnaps her, when he does grab her, I have a distinct memory of 12-year-old Trace like looking through the banister and all like, my parents and my uncle jumping out of their seats when he grabs Lily Sobieski. <laughs> oh, really? Interesting. So when I finally saw it years later, I was like, oh, this is the this is what they were doing. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, it's funny. Had you built it up to be something else in your mind? Um, Yeah, I imagine it to be a little bit more surprising than just always oh, snatches her. Yeah, because it, it does feel a little inevitable, right? Like you mm -hmm. can tell as soon as they get separated that one of them is either going to be murdered or abducted. Yeah, 100%. But I mean, I watch this movie, I feel like like once I finally was allowed to watch it, I did watch it a few times in high school and probably in college too. But I don't think I've seen it since mm -mm. then. How what, what was that like for you? Have you seen it in recently? No. So I saw this in theaters in 2001, because this was the period I was very actively right. going to various horror films. I knew who Paul Walker was, because I had seen him and she's all that. And oh, yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I I remember thinking that this looked like a good night out at the movies. I think me and a couple of friends went to see it. And yeah, I thought it was solid. I remember thinking it was better than I expected it to be. And then I think I saw it again, maybe five or six years later, and then not again since. Yeah, um, it, you know, it's funny because rewatching it today, I, I checked my letterbox. I had had this at a four and a half out of five. So I clearly like younger Trace really thought highly of this excited. movie. Yeah, I, 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 I did really like it. And granted, about halfway through this movie, that was kind of like, oh, hey, like, I still think it's good. I think it's very mm -hmm. well directed. I think it's very well acted. I think that it is suspenseful. Yes. And I, but I was kind of like, okay, but it's not like really grabbing me like it did, you know, 
15 mm-hmm. years ago. Until that climax, man, because Ooh. I'm going to tell you, the last 20 minutes of this movie yeah. are really fucking suspenseful and really well done. Like, the pacing yeah. of this ending is so good, which, of course, when we'll talk about the um, the other endings, <laughs> the plethora of endings that this movie could have had. <laughs> mm-hmm. No, they absolutely went with the right one. Mm-hmm. And for me, it's the editing of the ending, just cutting between all of the various things, like the door and Steve's mm-hmm. on getting, you know, tied to that post. And like, are we going to get Lily Sobieski? Okay, are we going to get Steve's on? It's, it's all good stuff. The cops come. They're kicking down the doors. We're counting down the rooms. Mm-hmm. And- you're right, though, with editing, but also, like, one of the alternatings, it's kind of framed similarly, but it's like, oh, instead of Paul Walker almost opening the door when Steve Zahn is dealing with Rusty Nail, it's both of them in the behind the building fighting with Rusty Nail, right. which, that cuts down on some tension, because it's like, oh, like, you're missing that great thing where it's like, oh my god, Rusty Nail's holding, like, Steve Zahn's mouth shut, and Paul Walker's about to open the door, oh my god, what's gonna happen? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, but yeah, no, really, really good. Well, why don't we why don't we dive into this, Joe? Huh? Sounds good. So, okay, I don't have a ton of production history except for about these fucking endings because it's <laughs> all... a lot about the endings. Yeah, yeah. Well, so okay, this script would have been completed uh, late ninety eight, early ninety nine. Now, of course, we're looking at a movie that came out in October of two thousand one. There's a big gap there. Mm-hmm. What's up with that gap, Trace? Filming took place over a nearly two year period from about September of ninety nine to like February of oh one. Wow. It had a production budget of $25 million. Now, notice that I didn't say it was given a production budget of $25 million. And while that may have been the budget from the get-go, I feel like it's not. Because, as we've said, there are multiple alternate endings to this movie. To the point, though, where there is an alternate third act. It's not even an mm-hmm. alternate ending. It is a completely different third act that they yeah. reshot twice. Yeah, you can see some of the footage that they keep in the final edit. It is in there, but yeah, it it honestly feels like a completely different movie with the same characters. Yeah, and one of I don't know if it's the original one or one of the other ones, but one of them like ends in the cornfield, which obviously is in the final cut, but earlier <laughs> in the film. Which yes, again editing. And when I was doing my cheat sheet for this, I was like, there were four editors on this film. <laughs> yeah we've done our speculations in episodes past where why are there so many editors and in this case it's definitely a i wonder if one person started and then said uh i have to go work on another movie it's been two fucking years yeah and so i mean like the screenwriters for this film one of them is clay tarver who hey joe weird like synchronicity serendipity whatever you want to call it so i'm you know doing my research for this and i'm like cool like jj abrams is one of the screenwriters we all know who jj abrams is Mm -hmm. clay tarver okay clay tarver um what has he done before and he hasn't really done anything like he's done a couple like tv things but really this is his one big feature film okay and his other feature film credit is actually coming out this year and it's a movie called vacation friends and i shit you not when i was reading this the trailer for vacation friends popped up on my tv (laughs) (laughs) it came out in september (laughs) right wow okay um director john Dahl, who i thought sounded really familiar but i don't really know anything he i mean sorry i know the things he's done but i've never seen them hmm Really made it big with a Linda Fiorentino starer, The Last Seduction. Uh, yeah, that's a pretty famous one. I've never seen it. Um, which, looking into it, I was like, that's why Linda Fiorentino's famous. Like, yes, <laughs> it's not for Jade. Yeah, yeah, but I was, I'm thinking like Dogma and Men in Black. Like, that's what I know her from. People of a certain age would definitely know The Last Seduction. There, it's like the mid-90s. 
He also did Unforgettable, Rounders, and since Joyride has done a lot of TV. Like, a lot, a lot of TV. Okay, okay. But yeah, so as I said, though, this... I mean, they filmed this movie over two years, and from what I can tell, J.J. Abrams had a very specific vision for what he wanted this movie to be. Okay. That being said, I don't know whose vision was which ending. Right. So, between 99 and 01, during original filming, um, all the reshoots included changing the ending a few times. You know, there were several versions of the film which were shown at various test screenings over the course of this period. Some examples included two different voice actors voicing Rusty Nail, one of which was Eric Roberts, by the way. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah. It would work. He's got a good gravelly voice, too. He does. Well, I was going to say his career has kind of gone to the shitter compared to Ted Levine, but honestly, like, Ted Levine hasn't really done a lot either. But you know what? Eric Roberts is in all those, like, um, Asylum-type movies now. <laughs> I thought he was dead. No, he's not dead. Damn it. <laughs> he's not dead. Oh, I'm thinking of Robert Forster. Yes. No, I'm. this is Eric Roberts. Uh, Julia Roberts is, like, stepbrother that they're estranged. Right, 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 right. Okay. Yeah. Some of the test screenings didn't include the scene where Lewis and Fuller go into the diner naked. Mm-hmm. Nevertheless, apparently each screening got a great response from test audiences. And that is the tidbit that I'm like, okay, why? So it was always working. It's just a matter of how do we want it all to come together. And that's what I th- I really do think that Abrams was like, I don't know if maybe the, sh- the originally shot ending wasn't the original script or if Abrams saw it and he was like, no, even though he's not the director. Like, <laughs> I was mm-hmm. like, no, this has to be different. I-, I don't know what this was, but... I mean, it was also, like, originally titled Squelch, so. <laughs> Which, P.S., unsellable title. That is awful. Just no. Mm-mm. No, no, no. So, yeah, I mean, and we'll go into the endings more a bit later, maybe probably at the ending of the film, to be like, well, which one do y'all like better? But that being said, <laughs> if you have the DVD of this film, like I do, um, this very old DVD, <laughs> yeah. it does have all of these endings on it, except there apparently is an ending that was written but not shot where Lily Sobieski's friend Charlotte um, does get killed. Hmm. But any Fangoria heads out there, Fangoria number 207 shows a picture of Steve Zahn, Fuller, in a motel room looking at Charlotte's dead, mutilated body on a bed. So that's a curse situation, right? Like where we see uh, uh, Maya's mutilated body but in Fangoria but not in the movie. Like, I don't know. Right. I don't know. Anyway. Joyride opens theatrically on October 5th, 2001. It earns $7.3 million its opening weekend, ranking number five behind Training Day and Serendipity, both mm-hmm. in their first weekend and in the number one and two spots, respectively. Right. And also behind Don't Say a Word and Zoolander, both in their second weekends. My God, I have seen all of those films in theaters, so clearly I was going all the time, except for Training Day. Because I was like, oh, I don't want to see Denzel Washington in this kind of role. Even though I know that was the selling feature for the film. No, I know. I've never seen Training Day either. But that that was mostly like, oh, it's like a guy's cop movie. Which, listeners, if you're yelling at me right now, like, no, it's a great movie. I'm sure it is. I just, you know, I mean, A, I was 12 when it came out. But (laughs) B, (laughs) I just never got around to watching it. That's funny, though. I feel like this would have been a very trace weekend had you been able to see these films. Like, I get the impression you probably enjoy don't say a word you probably have seen zoolander and you're eh mm-hmm. on it and mm-hmm. yeah well i did so where i was this weekend was seeing serendipity in theaters and that movie yeah. is not good that is a very bad movie fuck you i love that movie no! that movie is adorable <laughs> that movie is so bad oh my no you go to your dark corner no 
12-year-old Trace was like, this is bad. This is a bad, bad movie. Bad. <laughs> uh, that movie made me want to go to New York so I could get frozen hot chocolate. So fuck you. You know what? I did go to New York and I did get frozen hot chocolate in the real serendipity. It was right? better than the movie itself. Oh, my God. <laughs> I agree to disagree. Move on. Move on. Anyway, so by the end of the Joyride's theatrical run, it had grossed $22 million in the United States and $14.7 million overseas for a worldwide yeah. total of $36.6 million. Again, against that production budget of $25 million. Not good. Not good. <sighs> I actually always remember this movie as making way more than that because it is so well received. Yes. Well, Right? I mean, I don't even call this a cult film because I feel like People, A, know this movie, and people yes. like this movie. Yes. Yeah, like when you say that you're watching Joyride, you don't get people saying, oh, it's not that good. Everybody and their dog is falling over themselves to be like, yeah, it's a great movie. Yes. Okay, so I was like, what the fuck? Why didn't this do better? Now, granted, I do think that the $25 million budget is a bit higher because of all the reshoots. So mm -hmm. I, won mm -hmm. I, I wonder what the original budget was. And granted, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe $25 million was the original budget and like the actual final budget was way higher because of the reshoots. But hey, usually you see a dash where they say 25 to 50. <laughs> mm -hmm. Exactly. So let me do a timeline for you, Joe. So, okay. First, June 22nd, 2001, Fast and the Furious comes out. So we already right. have a Paul Walker movie with Cars that is mm -hmm. doing very, very well. Yeah, not a lot of money on that one. Yes. August 31st, 2001, Jeepers Creepers comes out. And that might be a weird comparison, but the reason I bring up that film is because, A, it was marketed very much as a road trip movie between mm -hmm. a brother and a sister, and... If you remember the time, all the reviews were like, oh, it's really, really good. Up until the monster comes in, then it gets really shitty. And also, that movie got a D-Cinema score, despite oh, like breaking Labor Day Records box office weekend. But Yeah, that one did make a lot of money, though. It did, but audience word of mouth was not good. And I'm wondering if it's because, A, they, they didn't like that it became, like, went from, like, you know, real horror to monster horror. Mm -hmm. Also because it does have a downer of an ending. Right. So I wonder if people were like, ooh, we just went to go see one road trip movie and that didn't turn out well, so here's this one. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that's number two. Number okay. three, let's maybe discuss, well not discuss, but mention September 11th, 2001. That happens a month before yeah. this movie comes out. And then yeah. my fourth and final one, The Glass House, being released September 14th, 2001, about three weeks before this movie comes out. So... As much as you and I both love Lily Sobieski, I don't think she's a box office draw. No. Oh, no, absolutely not. I think in this day and age, you would have said, oh, Paul Walker is the draw because he was the most famous, not even accounting for Fast and Furious because they wouldn't have known that when they made Joyride. But I think that's probably us retroactively looking back and saying, oh, wow, Paul Walker's in this movie. And yeah, I know Steve's on. We know Lily Sobieski. But when this film got made, this was marketed as, oh, it's a horror movie for teens about kids in a car like they weren't selling it on names i think the casting though was pretty ingenious because you have like lisa Bayeski who like, i mean again never been kissed like that would at least get some girls to be like oh yeah that girl okay steve zahn was kind of like i don't know if saving silverman was out by this point but like steve zahn had done a lot of work also by the way he is way older than i thought he was um not a yeah. diss not a dig i just he doesn't look his age does not. He looks way younger. Like, he was born in 1967, I think. So he was about 33, 34 when he filmed this movie. Again, compared to Lily Sobieski's 17 when she filmed this movie. 
Yeah, it makes that deleted scene where they make out all the worse. Yeah, so, I mean, nevertheless, I only bring up those four events because I'm like, I just wonder if maybe it was, like, by the time this movie came out, A, people were, you know, emotionally exhausted after 9-11. They'd already seen a car movie with Paul Walker. They'd already Mm -hmm. been burned by a car movie with Jeepers Creepers. And then the people that saw The Glass House were like, ew, fuck no. Right. Maybe. Maybe if they hadn't have reshot so many things in this movie, it would have come out earlier and done better. Who knows? yeah you know especially when movies get quote-unquote delayed or when they have added time to their production i do wonder what would have happened if the film had to come out earlier because it would have preceded all of these events and maybe this would have been the movie that made paul walker famous or rescued the glass house because people would have been like right. fuck yeah lily sobieski exactly granted glass house did get shit reviews which this film did yes. not no Yeah. So we are looking at a 74% on Rotten Tomatoes with an average score of 6.6 out of 10. Uh, Mm. Letterboxd, we got a 6.2 out of 10. Audiences pulled by CinemaScore gave it a B+. These are good numbers for a horror film. Yeah, the the word of mouth is there. The people that did see this movie liked it, but it it didn't help. Like This movie just tanked to the box office. Mm -hmm. But I guess it wasn't so bad that they didn't want to make sequels because we do have two direct-to-video sequels. Joyride 2 Dead Ahead from 2008 and Joyride 3 Roadkill from 2014, which a 13 years later direct DVD sequel, you know? <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, as we've talked about on uh, Mirror Mirror, there was a lot of money to be made in direct video, even into the aughts. Mm-hmm. Um, have you seen either of those sequels, by the way? I have not, no. I definitely have seen the second one, and this was actually when I worked at Blockbuster because I was like, Fuck it. I'll watch Joyride 2. Sure. I remember nothing about it, uh, and it's not good. (laughs) That's it. (laughs) Signs that I know you don't remember anything about it. When I said, oh, it has Nick Zano in it, you did not remember him at all. Well, okay. So what's funny is the lead in that movie is Nikki Acox, and I know her as the lead in Jeepers Creepers 2. (laughs) Oh my God. Stop it. (laughs) I know. I know. It's my last Jeepers Creepers reference, but I was going to say, folks, I hope you're appreciating it because we will probably never mention the film again. No, unless it like directly involves the box office uh, status of another film. We will not be talking about Jeepers Creepers again. Mm -hmm. But yeah, so I mean, that's I mean, that's really it. You know, this film does seem to have gained, obviously, an appreciation since its release. And I wonder if it was one of those like home video things where people just rented it because it was an easy, non-gory thriller. Absolutely. This has slumber party staple Mm. all over it. I'm willing to bet that had teen girls discovered this theatrically, it would have made a shit ton of money. But I'm willing to bet that a bunch of people were just like, yeah, this is a high octane, low gore, but very thrilling to the point of scary film. Yeah. Agreed. And that's the thing, like, even though it's R-rated, like, I think this is an easy watch that you could, like, show your grandmother on a Saturday night. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I don't know. I don't like what those boys are saying into that CB radio. Oh, my God. I have, uh, I was so uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. I, I think we've talked about this because we obviously covered movies with pranks before, dating all the way back to our episode on the Rage Carry 2. But, like, yeah, watching them prank this... I'm going to mm-hmm. say poor man because at the time we don't know he's a psychopath. But, like, right, it's really uncomfortable for me to watch and it's really upsetting. Because I'm just like, y'all, it, it, you are immediately pitting me against mm-hmm. our two protagonists. Because they are horrible. Uh, Yeah, it's hard. I definitely found that I like Steve Zahn because I think he is a very winsome, very comedically Mm -hmm. gifted, just inherently likable. You know, you look at his face and you want to like him. 
Fuller is an absolute piece of dog shit in this yeah, movie. And it took me, you know, this is very like, oh, 2020 woke. But I just realized, yeah, this is a real bad dude. Like between the prank and then the way that he treats Lily Sobieski later in the film during the drunk scene, I was just like, oh, I kind of want this character to die because he's bad. Yeah, I have thoughts about him during the drunk scene, too, because he's like, he has porn on for his passed out brother. And he asks mm-hmm. his brother, oh, is it OK if I go go to her room while he's passed out <laughs> and not getting an answer? And he's like, all right, cool. You didn't say no. So there I go. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then he basically guilt trips slash forces his way into her room. It's like it's a date rapey. Yeah, and this is not just 2021, like, woke us, honestly, because, like, I've always liked this movie, but even back then, like, I I don't handle pranks well. I don't really see the appeal in pranks. I mean, okay, I do see the appeal in pranks, but (laughs) I, I'm not an asshole intentionally. (laughs) Intentionally, that's the key word. Oh, it's the key word. Yeah, I don't intentionally want to prank someone, because that to me is just like, that is really fucked up. And it's not even because I've been pranked a lot in my past, like, I just, like... I just don't like it. I don't understand the appeal. I don't like it. I hate it. It's stupid. If you do pranks, go away. (laughs) Yeah, folks, if you want to hear Trace's opinions on pranks, go back also and listen to our April Fool's Day episode because you fucking hate a lot of those characters because all they Uh, do is play pranks. I would be livid. Live, uh, like, like <laughs> according to my horoscope i'm really good at cutting ties and that is like a tie cutting thing like sorry oh, friend wow. you're not my friend anymore <laughs> okay good to know everyone take notes <laughs> but uh, yeah all right well joe why don't you take us through the plot and we can discuss this film because i think we have a lot to discuss Indeed, yeah. So we are introduced to Berkeley's student, Lewis Thomas, who is played by Paul Walker. And again, if you're thinking of characters that are likable, I'm immediately not on board with the way that this dude is being an absolute shit roommate because he wants to talk to a girl (laughs) that he's invested in. I I wrote in my notes, total dick in all caps to his roommate. (laughs) The guy wakes up and says, I have a final tomorrow. And he's like, oh, sorry. And turns off the light and just rolls over and keeps having a conversation on the phone. He does give him some headphones and I'm going to say a CD player. But like... I don't know about you. Are you a person who can go to sleep listening to music in your in, like, in headphones? No, absolutely cannot. I'm not. I, some people can. I envy them. Not me. Yeah. I'm always reminded of Urban Legend when Alicia Witt's character just puts on the headphones and listens yes! to sad girl rock. And I'm just like, <laughs> no. Hey, that's also not drowning out loud sex noises. Okay. I also, I, pro- I promise I won't just keep complaining about the 2001-ness of this movie. But okay. Um, we kind of get some backstory into Vena, the Lily Sobieski character here. Mm-hmm. She she broke up with a guy because he said that he knew her, but he didn't really know her. But then when she broke up with him, he cried. And mm-hmm. both her and Paul Walker make fun of this poor boy for Ew, crying. a man who's not a man know, because he cries? I, 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 I know, people are going to be like, yo, whatever, it's not a big deal. I, I get it. I was just kind of like... It's a very 2001 thing. Yeah, yeah. I was just kind of like, oh, that poor guy. I feel bad for that guy. <laughs> yep. I mean, that dude's probably not out pulling pranks on CB radios. He's alive and not stressed out. There you go. There we go. Yeah. <laughs> Dodge the bullet, man. <laughs> uh, yeah. So the woman in question is what an unusual character name, Trace. Venna. Venna Wilcox. <laughs> I don't... <laughs> it, it is a choice. Hey, I don't think it's weird, but I do think it's a little weird. This age gap. Like, 
17-year-old Lily Sobieski with 33-year-old Zahn, and I want to say, like, 27-year-old Paul Walker. Like, Mm -hmm. granted, Lily Sobieski looks very mature. She looks older. It's because she's tall. It's still so weird. (laughs) It is. It is. Yeah. And particularly when, I mean, A, folks, now that you know her age, go back and watch the way that the film introduces Mm. her, which is she is resting on her side on the bed wearing a t-shirt and panties so your introduction to the female lead of this film is the best ass first yeah you don't even need to see her face because look at what you got that booty okay let's get this out of the way up front because i don't want to like y'all this will be the end of our like ew like male gaze objectification blah 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 objectification Mm -hmm. when she is reintroduced later in the film (laughs) Mm-hmm. She's the camera starts at her knees, I think, and works its way up, but yeah. holds on her titty as she is wearing this orange shirt of some kind, but you can clearly see her nipple through it. And I'm like, really, movie? Yeah. <laughs> like, what are we doing? What are you doing, doll? <laughs> this is not okay. Uh, okay. That's or it. you know what? Let's reframe this in a positive light and say, hey, lesbians and bi folk, if you like Lily Sobieski, this is a good film for you. <laughs> there you go there you go yeah. and, and she looks good she looks sexy oh yeah 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 oh, I'm, I'm sorry <laughs> nope not saying that because she's 17 <laughs> wow she's not 17 anymore not anymore no <laughs> um i did do a deep dive not a deep dive but i looked into her stuff so she retired back in 2012 and she does art now Oh, good for her and sad for us yeah very much so i always have mixed feelings when figures from a period when i was really actively going to the theaters when i find out that they've retired and they don't do movies like don't you ever just think about amanda Bynes and wish her well and want her to come back to movies and like there's a bunch of actresses from this time period where i just think hollywood must have just been shit for you because none of you are here anymore here's the thing like when it comes to things like that and I'm sure I'm sure I've done it before. So I'm going to say this, y'all. Don't go dig into my tweets and like look for something I've said about an actor, actress in the past or whatever. But oh dear, I am loath, loath to critique actor, actress behavior. You know, the the comments are always like, "Oh wow, it must be so hard for them. They're so rich. Like, oh my god, having all that money and fame must be so difficult." And I'm like, mm. "But it is like I, it's I, a I, very different experience that we have no idea what they're going through." Yes, and again, I mean, even as like I mean, like something like me too. Like obviously, there's things that are going around not being said. Mm. Mm-hmm. So whenever I see something, like, when we talk about Lindsay Lohan, we talk about Amanda Bynes, all that yeah, stuff, I'm like Paris Hilton. Mm-hmm. Paris Hilton, yes, exactly. Like my my gut reaction is never to be like, "Oh, what a stupid slut!" Like that's terrible. <laughs> oh my it's, God. Oh, like, oh, she should know better. She should do better. She has money, whatever. Mm-hmm. It's more so like, "Oh, I feel so bad for her." Yeah. So, yeah. But so good for Sobieski. Like, I mean, I I don't know what made her decide to quit acting, but Mm -hmm. there you go. I hope she's happy making art and I hope that she is, you know, making a living off of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yep. Okay. So basically, upon learning that she is now single, uh, Lewis figures out that he might be able to get out of the friend zone. So he exchanges his refundable airplane ticket that he was going to use to go home, and he instead buys a vintage 1971 Chrysler Newton. Question. Mm -hmm. How much was the refund on that plane ticket, and how much was that car? Uh, I have to think (laughs) that that car was, yeah, maybe $1,000 to $1,500. Yeah, vintage 1970. I was just like, this must be the most expensive plane ticket that he's refunding right now. <laughs> Admittedly, he is going from California to, did they say New Jersey, I think? I think so. It's definitely the East Coast. 
Yeah, so it it would be pricey. I don't think it's maybe it's because he's traveling at a, a very expensive time of the year because it's supposed to be spring break, right? Either spring break. I thought it was the end of uh, actually. Oh, that's it might another be the end thing. of term. Yeah. Well, she says end of freshman year. So I'm like, okay, but then you have her in a bar later ordering shots. End of mm-hmm. your freshman year. You're not 21. <laughs> yeah. Hmm. <laughs> maybe she no i got nothing i have yeah. no idea <laughs> i mean technically you never see her take a drink because she was underage when they filmed it so she couldn't yeah exactly but i mean <laughs> you know what nevertheless movie logic there you go yeah so he is on the road to go and pick her up that's all you need to know he does end up having a conversation with his mother and this is when he learns that his older brother fuller played by steve zahn mm-hmm. has been put in jail for reasons we don't really ever find out but we can hypothesize so he makes a detour to salt lake city to pick him up and en route he is pulled over by a police officer and this is so that we can get exposition about his broken taillight which will become important Important later um he's also driving 200 miles out of his way to yeah bail out his brother and so i'm just kind of like i mean look i have one sister i love her to death Mm-hmm. Am I going to drive 200 miles out of my way after a repeat offense, apparently? Because apparently he's been to jail more than one time. <laughs> yeah, he's definitely the black sheep. Like, I'm just like, all right, dude. I mean, whatever. Movie has to happen. Like, okay, there we go. I have seen a couple of people's readings of this that the film is really all about the relationship between the two brothers. And I think right. that's part of the reason why Lily Sobieski is not in this as much, because the film is really interested in patching up the five year estrangement between these two brothers. Right. But this is meant to cue us into who Lewis is as a person. He normally plays by the rules like he would never do a u-turn officer it's extenuating circumstances but also you very much get the impression that he wants to make everything right but also like okay i idolize you so yes i will drive out of my way come pick you up come bail you out i don't even know if it's idolatry at this point i think it's more so like he does what his brother says i mean it's his older brother which i actually think that bit of casting is very interesting right because steve zahn is shorter and looks younger than paul walker or at least on the same age despite in real life even being like six or seven years older than him right it's unexpected but very intriguing casting having steve zahn because i feel like a normal quote-unquote movie would have paul walker be the older brother Hmm. i can see it definitely for the height but i think even in their performances steve zahn obviously gets to play bigger things Mm, and he's more of a personality but I just think he's really commanding, so it's easy to understand why Lewis ends up falling under his wing or wanting to do things to appease him. Meanwhile, um, everyone, Steve's on appreciation. Go watch The White Lotus on HBO. Uh, I mean, yeah, sure. <laughs> I just, it, it, it's, it's, um, it's not his usual work, is what, you see, what you're seeing in that show. Yeah, okay. Yeah. I would agree with that. Okay, so Fuller ends up hitching a ride with him to at least Boulder. So they're on the road. They're going to go and pick up Venna. And uh, yeah, uh, when they stop at a gas station, this is when Fuller gets a CB radio installed for $40. And of course, he does not ask Lewis about this. So again, this is a little bit of backstory as to how these characters operate around one another. Fuller does things and Lewis goes along with it. It's definitely a time capsule to 2001, right? Because he even says at some point, he's like, oh, it's like the pre-internet. But I'm like, okay, but like your internet is like the pre-internet. 
<laughs> yes, definitely to us. And it's also important to note that even though this film comes out in 2001, as we've talked about in numerous episodes, this would be the start of people having cell phones, but this film very much does not have an interest in engaging with that, so you will never see a cell phone. Yeah, yeah. which honestly, I like that. I think that's totally fine. Can you imagine this movie with cell phones? It would be like, and we're done. (sighs) I mean, honestly, I was more shocked by how quickly they're able to just go to like mechanics and get things fixed. Like they're just oh, like, oh, there's a there's a podunk mechanic station on the side of the road. Let's get our taillight fixed. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's no waiting for parts in this movie. (laughs) No, not at all. (laughs) Admittedly good, because who wants to watch that? (laughs) I mean, as as a really loyal film viewer. (laughs) I really want the reality of that, that 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 purchasing process. Yeah. (laughs) it's like the movie is now 12 weeks long as we had to wait for eight weeks so that they could get a part delivered Mm -hmm. all right so yes the cb radio is now installed they're back on the road and this is when we begin catfishing a gravelly voice trucker who goes by the handle of rusty nail played by an uncredited ted levine well voiced because when we see him he will be portrayed by a different actor which i what do you think of that i don't like it at all i I don't really like it either i honestly i mean i don't know if the intention from the get-go was oh we're just gonna have a stand-in and find a voice later that we like Mm -hmm. but it does make those later scenes where we do get really clear views of rusty nail i'm just kind of like oh like that's not ted levine no and it's very much a hey what do you think when i say the word trucker it's very much playing into stereotypes of a more obese person uh someone who looks unkempt it's it's well yeah it's very stereotypical and and we will get into that more once we get into more of the conversations that they have with rusty nail because there's that one Mm -hmm. line where he's like i may not be what you're expecting um yeah Well, I did see that originally one of the plans was to have Rusty Nail have some kind of disfigurement or disability, which I think actually makes all of that even more uncomfortable. Well, see, and for me, like, you know, even though Fuller is like, oh, it's the pre-internet to me that I was like, this is (laughs) pre-grinder. Well, yes, yes, that is also (laughs) true. I mean, sorry, I know it is pre-grinder. Obviously, it's pre-grinder. But I'm like, oh, but it's like a sex chat line, you know? Yeah, I think one of the weird things for me watching this is that it sounds like most people are using this to figure out where the police are hiding so that they don't get traffic tickets. And then you've got these two fucking idiots who are trying to use it as a faux sex chat line. (laughs) I'm just imagining other people driving around being like, get the fuck off this. I'm trying to hear whether I'm going to get pulled over. I mean, they're catfishing before catfishing was a term. Well, yeah, this is true. Like, I used it because I feel like people will know what we mean when we say that. But at the time, yeah, they're just pulling a prank. Yep. Uh, Okay, so obviously the prank in question, though, is Lewis doing an impersonation of a woman's voice. Hey, Rastanel, how you been? (laughs) Why does it always come out Southern for me? Oh my god, no, wait, well, he does have a Southern accent to it, but, um, no, what what you just did, oh my, it sounds like something. What the fuck does it sound like? Like a South Park voice, almost. (laughs) Oh gosh. (laughs) Mr. Garrison? No, 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 not Mr. Garrison. It's it's, it's, it's because a lot of the female voices, sorry, a lot of the guests, you know, when they're doing a female celebrity, they have like a, a, it's either Trey Parker or Matt Stone doing the voice as a woman. So that's what it sounds like to me is like, hey, Rusty Nail, you want to come and get some pink champagne? I'm in room 17. Oh, 
Oh my god. Oh my god, you know what it is? Oh my god, it's not even South Park. You know what I'm it is? trying to follow you here. No, sorry. Where are you going? <laughs> it is Chris Elliott in Scary Movie 2. Oh, Jesus God, yes. Which, granted, doesn't really track because Scary Movie 2 would have come out a few months before this, but obviously mm-hmm. that was released after this was filmed. Right. But still, yeah, yeah. that's what it sounds like. <laughs> I mean, he's just doing a female affectation, and to me incredibly unconvincing maybe it's just because we're seeing paul walker make these noises no it's not convincing uh no one would be fooled by this come on and when we get into the rusty nail of it all in a bit i think there's an argument to be made that rusty nail knew from the get-go that this was a prank oh interesting so i don't know okay so they pull over for the night at the Lone Star Motel. So this is after they've done a little bit of catfishing and then they kind of lose him. So they yep. pull over for the night and Fuller ends up making a disability so that he can park in the handicapped spot at the motel. Strike 40. How many? Yeah. <laughs> but... I mean, the film does a good job of constantly introducing newer, shittier characters so that Fuller doesn't seem that bad. So enter this like abrasive prick, Ronald Ellinghouse, who is played by Kenneth White, and he's bitching out and making racist comments to the night clerk of this motel. This. Yeah. Mm -hmm. (laughs) This was, I was like, oh, 2001. (laughs) He also drops the R word. He definitely does. Yeah. Uh, There's a couple of things where you're like, time capsule. We don't do this shit anymore. I'm sorry. It's not this man that drops the R word. It's the police chief later (laughs) that drops the R word. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Jim Beaver from Supernatural, who appears in one scene in this movie. Uh, Well, I know it means nothing to you, but it's everything to other people. (laughs) But I like this as a setup, right? Like, I mean, like it almost, almost gets you on their side to where you're like, Oh, yeah. You know what? Fuck that guy over. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately, it's at the expense of what we know him as now is this poor, sad trucker. Yeah, just a lonely trucker who's looking for female company. And they end up pointing him in the direction of this shithead at the motel. So they get the room next to this guy so that they can watch the drama unfold. And then they basically tell Rusty Nail, OK, show up at midnight and I'll be there waiting for you. And then they listen And I do love the decision not to show this. So we just have to watch the brothers as they're listening to something happening on the other side of this motel wall. And I like the red color. I like the sound effects of the storm outside and them trying to figure it. And you just hear a thump after the two men confront each other. It's almost a little rear window-y, right? Like, Mm. there is a lot of restraint in this movie that I really do appreciate. But at the same time, I'm kind of like, well, this came out today. I can see just people being like, it's not gory enough. Me, why aren't you showing me stuff? Off-screen kills? (laughs) What? That's not scary. I think that's where we get more into the thriller territory as opposed to quote-unquote horror, right? Because it is more about setting mood and tone and just letting things play out. Like, this actually reminded me a little bit of Rope. Yeah. Oh, yes. I can 100% see that. Good, good, good observation. <laughs> On that note, I was even going to say, yes, it is Hitchcockian in a way. Yeah. Like, you can tell J.J. Abrams, like, listened or read that fucking Hitchcock bomb suspense monologue and was like, mm-hmm. all right, let me movieize that. 
Exactly. Yeah, lots of mirror work, lots of deep focus in these scenes in particular. And I'm glad you mentioned that split diopter in the beginning because yeah, there's a scene like on the bed here where it's like, okay, that's a split diopter. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Oh yeah, so much in these couple of scenes like this and then when they're talking to uh, the officer in the morning when he basically describes, yeah, so this dude was vandalized, like somebody ripped off the bottom part of his jaw and even, you know, the decision to film this in a lot of deep focus, and then we get the hospital scene where we've got some slow-mo. It's all very stylish. Yeah, agreed, agreed. So this is when they get ripped a new one themselves, though not in the jaw, just, uh, you know, kind of in the a-hole by Sheriff Ritter. And I did kind of think that he was going to come back because we know that they're going to try to call the cops later. But I guess part of it was that they are making headway across the u.s so it wouldn't make sense for someone from table rock to show up later on when they get to like boulder i will say i was at least happy and proud of them for confessing immediately well lewis does and then fuller gets mad at him because he's like uh dude i just got out of jail you could have sent me back so hey what do you think of their moral quandary right because lewis makes a sorry fuller makes a comparison to something where he's like oh what if you like call um like order a bunch of pizzas to your neighbor's place and then the pizza delivery guy like murders your neighbor is that your fault (laughs) and lewis is like yes yes (laughs) oh no like they are absolutely responsible for what happens to this man although you could also say okay there is a gay panic piece to all of this right Mm -hmm. well i mean would you like to elaborate on that now uh let's take it one scene further and then we will introduce because folks you may be saying okay i know it's the 20th anniversary and yes we get to see a couple of bare asses but why else are we covering this and we do have a reason we promise uh 45 minutes into this we we promise we have a reason yeah yeah So they avoid arrest, but they do get a proper stern talking to. And then at this point, you know, they they're like, okay, well, that's going to be the end of it. But then when they're driving that night, they hear Rusty Nail just calling. And he sounds so mournful, like he's trying to reconnect with this woman that he thought he made a connection with on the CB airwaves. And Lewis comes clean to him and he tries to get Fuller to apologize and instead Fuller doubles down by being a total shitbag and actively aggravates this person they don't know. Again, I'm not saying that I think Rusty Nail knew from the get-go. I'm just saying it's a possibility. So I still watch this movie subscribing to the idea that this man is being duped right now at this moment. But I do think you can watch this and be like, Rusty Nail is the mastermind behind all this. And granted, I haven't seen the second or third film. I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. Whoops. I have seen the second film. <laughs> <laughs> but you remember nothing of it, so you might as well have not. So, but, but, but maybe there is, because they do turn him into kind of like the boogeyman, right? Where he, right. he is, oh, he's going around just killing people in the second and third movie. And cannot be killed, apparently. Yes, exactly. And so I'm just like, you know, th- there is something to be said that that could be a possibility, but... Yeah, mm-hmm. and th- at this point, so I'm like, no, these guys are assholes. They're really fucking with this poor man who might be mentally unstable. Right. Well, I'm sorry, is mentally unstable. Definitely <laughs> mentally unstable. We just don't know yet. Yeah. And this is when they realize that they're probably in well over their heads because Fuller doesn't think that anything is going to come of this. So he doesn't feel any apprehension about mouthing off to this person. This is how you know it's before the internet existed because if you did this now, you'd be like, oh, I could be doxxed and this person could show up at my door. 
Oh my God, doxing. Uh, so <laughs> totally random, not funny story. But I had a, um, uh, someone like message me on Facebook once and they, they knew something about me. And But mm. it was like a mutual, it was a friend. It was someone I had met before. Like I knew okay. this person. It was, a, it was a girl, it wasn't a guy. But I was like, oh, how did you know that? And they go, doxing, haha. And I was like, I don't know what that means. What? So I had to Google doxing and I was like, oh, huh. That's not okay. Not okay. <laughs> Also, the fact that it's a girl doesn't make it any more acceptable or less well, scary. Like, people knowing things about you that they shouldn't know freaks me the fuck out. I just meant that it wasn't, like, a, it wasn't like sexual in nature, like, the motivation. Okay. It was just, like, a, I guess it was a person who just thought that doxing someone was okay to figure out some kind of information. Which, uh, it's not okay, by the way. Mm-hmm. Don't do that to me, please. Don't dox me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so... Basically, Fuller is mouthing off, thinking nothing's going to happen. And then this is when Rusty Nail says something about one of their taillights being out. Oh, this is great. Yeah. And I think this is a trailer line, too. But he goes, you know, Black Sheep, we really ought to get that fixed. Get mm-hmm. what fixed? Your taillight. Yeah. <laughs> I'm trying, y'all. I'm really trying for my Ted Levine impersonation, but I can't do it. I'm liking it. I think you just need be confident. Go into it full 110%. Candy cane. <laughs> um, yeah, th- this is scary. Even though you know it's coming, honestly, at this point, I feel like watching this movie, if you haven't seen the trailer, it's kind of like, all right, like, he's he's on the move, but mm-hmm. this is a very genuinely frightening thing. Yeah, and this is really the first big set piece of the film, because we've already had a man get his jaw ripped off, but we haven't really seen any of that. Right. Yeah, it just didn't make that same impact. But that's the restraint, though, because as you said, like uh, the, the effectiveness of that scene, that earlier scene in the hotel is, yeah, we don't see it. We can only hear what these brothers are hearing. And it's so mm-hmm. effective because all we can do is imagine. And then when we are told later, his jaw was ripped off. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, my God. Well, I think it prepares us for the kind of escalation and violence that we're about to get in this scene, right? So they realize, okay, this dude can see us or has seen us or has been following us. So they make a very hasty exit off the highway. They realize that they're out of gas. Pause really quick, though. But this is the first mention we'll get of Laramie because Mm -hmm. they're like, oh, we're 73 miles away from Laramie. We cannot make it that far in the gas we have. And I want to mention Laramie because it's maybe going to play an important well, sorry, it will play an important part in uh, our queer reading of this film. Yeah, which is right now. Right now. There you go. <laughs> Dude, you mentioned Laramie. That's why we said we were going to talk about it. There you go. Okay, so we're going to pull in a piece called Outside of Laramie Joyride as Gay Panic Horror by Eric Langberg, who posted this piece as part of Terry Menard's Gaily Helpful, uh, I believe from 2020. It was. And also, um, sorry, shout out to Terry, everyone, previous guest. He's on Final Destination. He's on Dating Wasn't Real. But Terry has wonderful, wonderful contributors come to him every year for this fundraiser, which takes place every June uh, mm-hmm. for Pride. And you'll find some wonderful analyses of films from a queer perspective on on that. It's wonderful. Yeah, and some of them are very, like, familiar queer texts where you think, mm-hmm. oh, okay, cool, I'm excited to read a new person's take on this. And then sometimes you get a piece like this that actually really recontextualizes a film and sheds a whole new light on it. Because, I mean, as we said, we have both seen this film mm-hmm. before. I had never considered this perspective before. Joe, you sent me this last night, and I was literally like, okay, I don't really know what has to do with it, but I'll watch the movie, and I'll, I'll read the article afterwards, whatever. And reading the article, I was like, 
Trace, mm-hmm. bad, bad gay. <laughs> like, how did yeah. you not put that together? So continue, please. So big shout out to Langberg. He draws comparisons between the film and the real life murder and hate crime of Matthew Shepard. So folks, we're going to pause our plot description so that we can go into some of the context because Mm -hmm. this is a bit of essential queer history. And while it is still relatively contemporary, uh, we just want to make sure that we're acknowledging it because it is a huge fucking milestone for us as a people. And a little bit of trigger warning because it does involve the hate crime of a gay person. So, Matthew Shepard, for those who don't know, was a gay HIV-positive student at the University of Wyoming, and he was beaten, tortured, and tied to a barbed wire fence and left to die near Laramie, Wyoming, on the night of October 6, 1998. This uh, was done by two gentlemen of around the same age, Aaron McKinney and Russell Henderson. They both ended up getting charged with uh, first-degree murder. They're serving two consecutive life sentences each. They said that they intended to rob Shepard, and they pretended to be gay to lure him out to their truck, and then they attacked him when Shepard came on to McKinney. And we should acknowledge that some of the details are murky, because the case is actually a little bit more complicated than people give it credit for. But the most important thing in terms of the legality of it is that McKinney ended up employing a gay panic defense at the trial. So this means that he says he wasn't drunk, he wasn't high, but he says by being touched intimately by another man, he blacked out, he went into a fugue state, and he murdered Matthew Shepard. So we should note that Matthew Shepard was 21 years old at the time. So there are conflicting reports that Shepard was involved in sex work and that he may have been selling drugs, and that may have been the reason why he was targeted for theft. I I will tell you right now, I didn't know those extra details because they they really came out later, Mm -hmm. like 2013 later, which is, you know, what, 12 years after the murder. Yeah. I don't want to comment on that too much because I do think that... um, that's not particularly relevant to this conversation yeah. because what was known at the time when this film was made was not was not those facts. Yes. Sorry, facts, research, whatever whatever you want to call it. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it, we were basing this off of what was known at the time when this script was being made. Yeah, so the murder happened in 1998 and this film goes into production in 1999. And Langberg draws the comparisons to say that this would have been a news item at the time that this film was being written. Yeah. If you think of the way that Rusty Nail ultimately ends up committing a crime because he thinks he's going into an intimate situation and then it turns out to be with a man and then he rips off this person's jaw and then he targets the people who put him into that situation, you can definitely see those kinds of comparisons. Before we come back to the film, though, I do just want to close out what happened in real life, which is that Shepard's murder brought national and international attention to hate crime legislation at both the state and federal level. Like, everyone knew about this case like they were paying very close attention to it. And people realized that sexual orientation and gender were not 
part of this 1969 United States federal hate crime law. So it was expanded. It didn't actually come into effect until 2009. President Obama signed it into uh, law. And it basically includes crimes that are motivated by a victim's actual or perceived gender, sexual orientation, gender identity, or disability. So people are protected under those identifications, whereas they had previously not been. And it should be noted that there was actually another case that was tied into this. And it was a man who was killed in Texas for being black. So they basically said, like, we need to update this law to protect vulnerable, marginalized communities who are being killed simply for existing as who they fucking are. Well, good luck getting any good legislation to have it in Texas at this point. So, um, yeah, we're in some dark times. We, yeah. we could use a little bit more of this kind of stuff. But that being said, though, th this comparison or, uh, uh, of Matthew Shepard to this film I've never thought of this before. Mm -mm. So you sent me this article. At the time when you sent it to me, I was like, how the fuck does Matthew Shepard connect with this film? Right. And as I was watching this today, I was like, oh my God, Laramie, there you go. Mm -hmm. And then we get this, it's a single shot, easy to miss, but as they drive away and you see, you know, like these two or three crosses, crucifixes planted in the ground, covered in flowers, which may or may not be a reference to Shepard or, or just in general, like, roadside deaths or murders or whatever mm -hmm. but it was something where even coming into the rusty nail aspect of it all where i was like oh right like this is a man acting out rage at being tricked into going mm -hmm. into a hotel room to have a sexual encounter with another man yeah he basically employs the gay panic defense 100 percent, and i'm ashamed of myself for not realizing or m making that connection before because it's right there. It's so easy to see, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, it's one of those things where I think if you're not paying attention to the road sign where they say Laramie, you could miss it. But then Eric Langberg really starts to draw a lot more comparison. So we'll bring up a couple more as we get into the film. But um, let's maybe catch back up with the action as the boys yeah. leave the highway. So they're now under the impression that they're being followed by Rusty Nail because he can see them. So they end up uh, driving to a gas station and Paul Walker goes inside so that he can call the police, but he can't get a hold of them. Meanwhile, Steve Zahn is keeping an eye out and he's refilling the gas tank. And then Paul Walker sees the truck driver come in and Steve Zahn is freaking out and Paul Walker basically pays and immediately leaves and then they're driving away and this truck starts to follow them so they're flipping the fuck out it seems to be a dead end and then of course the the reveal is that this is just a trucker who happened to notice that they had left their card and he returns it so you're like, oh, okay, phew, like it was, it was for nothing, ha ha, it was a false start. And then <laughs> fucking Rusty Dale drives through this ice truck. I, I think all of this is great. Like, really I love, good. I love the fake out. I love, like, th there's that moment, you know, when, when the, the ice truck is backing up and he like turns, like he's doing his fucking three-way turn, whatever. Mm -hmm. And, and <laughs> Steve Zahn just goes, do you hear that? Yeah. Which in any horror movie... <laughs> If someone says, do you hear that? Not a good sign. You better run the fuck away. <laughs> uh, yeah. So we should note that the dead end in question is actually a fence. And the the pair of them will end up having to burst through it with their car. And then they end up 
going down a bunch of switchbacks and then rusty nail pins them against a tree and basically threatens to crush their car until they apologize over the cb radio and then he laughs and drives away but Returning to the article, the use of like a fence and pinning someone and then kind of like leaving them for dead is again, it connotes an association to Matthew Shepard. Yeah. So again, after reading the article, I was like, you know, when it comes to gay panic, and maybe this is just because from my experience with people that I know, but for me, gay panic really stems also a lot from internalized homophobia. So Hmm. it's not explicitly said in any shape way or form in this film but i also kind of view it as rusty nail may have homosexual tendencies that he is afraid of confronting and he was just forced to confront those feelings or urges or whatever you want to say about it which makes him even angrier unfortunately there's not really any textual evidence here to back up my reading of this but like mm-hmm. i that's definitely like i again like if you're like oh like let's split the path of like one of two readings, um, one is this one, one is this one, I, I really do lean towards the, you're probably also queer in some shape, way, or form yourself, and you're angry that someone caught you in it. Yeah, and you have to be a little bit careful when you do this. Like, I know we've done readings in the past, like I did it right. in Final Destination. We talked about it in Curse, where people who uh, have, like, homophobic responses may sometimes be read as like having repressed feelings this one is tricky because the film is very deliberate about giving you as little information about rusty nail as possible so it's really difficult i think it's smart now granted uh, i I feel like if it was made today like and they wanted to make a political statement they would Mm -hmm. do more with that yeah but that wasn't the intention here no. That being said, though, do I think that, again, after everything we've just said, mm-hmm. do I think that the, the, the murder of Matthew Shepard, like, played a part in this screenplay? Quite possibly. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So however you read Rusty Nail, you can definitely see how the real life events might be percolating into this yeah. finished screenplay. Okay. So... I will say one of my favorite things about watching highway horror movies is how cars can take a licking and keep on ticking. So they <laughs> basically just get this car into the shop and then it's good as new. Trace. It's totally fine. It's totally fine. <laughs> <laughs> uh, they agree that they're not going to tell Venna about what happened. And then they just hit the road after tossing the CB radio out the window. Yep. That's it. Problem solved. Problem solved. The movie is over. We get to Boulder. We pick up Venna. We're introduced to her future roommate, Charlotte, who is played by Jessica Bowman. And then we're back on the road. This poor Charlotte. Like, I... (laughs) So, I mean, look, I know it's not... It it is what it is. Like, whatever. We we are only introduced to her Mm -hmm. so that we can give Venna a reason to care about her. Correct. Yes. Because the, the fact of the matter is... If we didn't have Charlotte, there really isn't a reason for any of them to, like, not just fucking hightail it to the home where they're going. Yeah, it's definitely a little bit of a plot mechanism to say, okay, well, this is why they can't just go to the police, why they can't just drive away, as you said. I was... It sounds terrible. I was happy to have Charlotte because it meant that Venna didn't become the damsel in distress until much later. Because I think without Charlotte, we would have just abducted Venna, and then she would have been in the back of Rusty Neal's truck right. for the second half of the film. 
So, okay, so the mentality is, well, we can't, like, capture this one bitch early, so let's get another bitch in here to do this first, and then we'll get this other bitch later. Oh, my God, who are you? The guy in the bar who's like, <laughs> is this your bitch? Oh, my God. Okay, no, I actually really love that scene, if only because I actually wish it played out more, because mm-hmm. I love watching Steve Zahn, like, diffuse that situation. It's very funny. Yeah, so they end up in a bar in Nebraska, and they're getting to know one another. This is important because, yeah, we're resetting things. The tension has been completely dismantled. We think that Rusty Nail's not an issue. So they're just chilling out in the bar. They're doing tequila shots. They're drinking beers. It's actually super kind of fun. Like, they look like they're having a great time. And then, yeah, she ends up getting hit on by this total asshole at the bar, and you think that we're going to get into a fight, which would be very expected, very stereotypical. And then instead, when this asshole asks Paul Walker, is this your bitch? Steve Zahn just comes in and pretends to act like a pimp and is like, what are you doing here? I told you not to come into this bar. And he like drags her out and then they have a good laugh about it. Can we just, can we like change the credits of this podcast to be like, Trace Thurman and his bitch, Joe Lipson, or vice versa. It could be Joe Lipson and his bitch, Trace Thurman. Oh my god <laughs> it's one of those things where it's a weird almost appropriative use of the word bitch where like we say bitch a lot on this podcast yeah, we say and, cunt a lot on this podcast yeah i don't know this one you're like oh wow okay they are using that bitch really really selectively to tell you everything you need to know about this guy who is not a character but for this particular moment bitch It doesn't feel out of place in the movie, but that Mm -mm. being said, this movie does seem to have a very specific view of truckers, unless Mm -hmm. you're driving an ice truck. Yes, in which case you're a perfect gentleman and definitely not a Dexter villain. (laughs) (sighs) Yeah, so they've been drinking quite a lot at this point. So this is when Lewis ends up crashing. This is when Fuller turns on pornography and then he goes okay. up to Venna's room and forces his way in. Wait, wait, wait. What did you think of brother showing brother porn? Um, I mean, I think for queer men, there's a very different kind of context. Yeah. Yeah. Expand upon that. I have seen some people say that there's a weirdly incestuous vibe in this film. Mm-hmm. There's an almost sexual nature to the relationship between the brothers and the kind of homoeroticism that ends up getting incorporated into the bare ass scene later. So I don't like that because to me, that's pushing it a bit far. But I definitely see this as Fuller has no boundaries. He doesn't care about the fact that it would be really uncomfortable or awkward to wake up and see your brother potentially jerking it to basic cable pornography. Whereas if you if you are a frequent visitor of Next Door Taboo, um, that, <laughs> that is not a thing that is going to be uncommon on that website. <laughs> oh my god. Hey bro, I just came over to see my friend and Dude. then my stepbrother's here and now <laughs> suddenly we're turkey based. Dude, we're stepbrothers. We can't touch his dicks. No, man, just let me see it. It's totally fine. Alright, if you say so. Let me show you how to handle a dick because your girlfriend won't. But you're my stepbrother, bro. Oh my god, your wife ran at her wedding? Oh my god, let me help you feel better about that. Oh, pants are off. Like, Mm -hmm. I mean, y'all, I'm sorry. Like, we're not, like, freaks here. Uh, (laughs) But this is a common theme. (laughs) It is. It's a very common theme. In in gay porn. I'm I'm saying gay porn because that's how I know it from. But, like, I'm sure it's common in straight porn, right? Like, stepsisters and shit? That's a thing, right? 
definitely for like faux lesbian porn i'm imagining yeah you know what let us know i don't need to look it up (laughs) (laughs) so needless to say yeah we've got this uncomfortable scene where fuller is now in venna's room and he's mixing her drinks and talking about how he's a bartender and he knows better this is honestly so rapey to me i was really uncomfortable and and, and the there's one deleted scene on the dvd and it is basically this scene scene changes Mm -hmm. and he does kiss her and but like forces himself on her like he pins her down and kisses her and she starts saying no but she doesn't push him off either and maybe that she does she pushes him onto the floor well no she she does when paul walker walks in the room uh, it felt like it was happening all at the same time to me. You know what? That's the editing. But my memory of this situation in this deleted scene <laughs> is that she says, no, you are right about that. But she doesn't forcibly push him off until Paul Walker runs in the room. Um, OK, well, Trace, I'm going to use this as an educational moment. I know. <laughs> no you don't means have to no. force I, I, someone I get off a bed to, <laughs> to mean no. If you say no, that means, OK, now we're stopping. No. Because if you push it any further, now it's sexual assault. I, I, I understand I'm glad this scene was cut. I'm, sorry, everyone yeah. listening, I, I am aware that no means no. I do know that. But it, it was one of those things where the way it was filmed was like, oh, she didn't care enough until Paul Walker ran in and mm. thus pushed him off. It would have given a bad vibe to everyone on screen. Yeah. It would have really made me lose empathy or like care for any of these characters. And also, as Amelia dropped after that. Like, she says, your brother's a creep, but then he's like, oh my god, rusty nail. So yeah. this entire subplot if we want to call it that is unnecessary and Mm -hmm. it's kind of gross yeah the weird thing too is people have picked up on the chemistry because Lily Sobieski and Steve Zahn do have good chemistry particularly Mm -hmm. in the bar scene before this all happens so there has been some confusion in the way that people read the film where they go so is she interested in both brothers or is it maybe that she's actually not interested in Paul Walker's character at all because like she never actually showed a romantic interest in Lewis. He was friend-zoned. Yeah. That's why he took this trip. I honestly would prefer it if all of that was removed. Like, every single thing. Like, can we just not have this straight guy and straight girl be friends? <laughs> no. Straight men and straight women can't be friends. They have to be fucking. I know. I know. It's tired. Yeah. It plays a part in this film, but not a big enough part. But again, had this scene been left in... Oh, yeah, no. It's, it's, it's icky. It's icky. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think it would have been icky in 2001, and they realized it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. For sure. So Lewis bursts in, and he's flipping the fuck out. <laughs> really bad movie rule that I hate, though. Movie logic. Mm-hmm. They're all wasted. Yes. Not anymore! <laughs> <laughs> because they get in their car and drive away and they're fine. <laughs> mm-hmm. Absolutely fine. Lewis is passed out on the bed. He can barely answer the phone. And then he hears Rusty Nail's voice and he sits fully upright. Sober. And then sober. Totally sober. <laughs> and I get it that sometimes you do have those kinds of situations, but it's more often than not a movie construction. Yeah. I'm aware it's a movie construction. I know it's silly. I know it's not realistic, but I really, screenwriters, Please, for the love of God, just, yeah, just don't have your characters get drunk. It's fine. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Or or wait 12 hours before bringing in the suspense. (laughs) I gotta sober up. Don't let scary things happen. Like, if only the world worked that way. Right. 
I will say I'm quite fond of the way because Venna has no idea what's happening because they have not told her any of this because they're gaslighting her. And she won't ever know because she even tells him later when they're inside naked at the diner, I don't know what they did to you, but and I'm like, oh, my God, y'all haven't told her yet. (laughs) Yeah, it's very much just, oh, this dude, we pulled a prank on him. That's it. Like, that's what she gets out of Paul Walker is they're peeling out of this. Well, and that's kind of my issue, is that, like, Vena is never on the same level as them, no. knowledge-wise. No. So that, to me, makes her damsely stuff later more egregious. And again, mm-hmm. I'm picking on this movie. I like this movie a lot. But it makes it worse, because I'm like, she is not in the know mm-hmm. for any of this. And I just, I, I wish even there was a scene where they told her, this is exactly what we did. And she fucking just smacks them both across the head and goes, what right. the fuck did you drag me into? <laughs> right. Uh, just deposit me on the side of the road. I no longer wish to be involved. Thank you. Yes, exactly that. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I do love her line, how scared am I supposed to be? Because that actually Ooh, yeah. felt like a really real line that you would say. Like, I don't know what I'm getting myself into. How scared do I need to be? How yes. involved do I need to be? Mm-hmm. Okay, so they leave and then... You could argue this is where the movie starts to get a little more preposterous because apparently Rusty Nail has taken all of this time to not only recover the CB radio and put it back in their trunk, but paint them sequential messages on road signs on the exact route they happen to take. It doesn't really hold up. Mm-mm. Which but is all fine. I don't care. Yeah. <laughs> you know why? Because it's actually really compelling. Yes. It's the equivalent of Helen and Julie and Ray getting notes. And I know what you did last summer. Right. Every time they show up, you're like, this is preposterous. But also, I love it when killers send you a note that's like, hey, I'm stalking you. (laughs) I get get, it does not hold up to scrutiny. But you know what? It's still kind of fun. Like, Mm -hmm. whatever. I can overlook plot contrivances if it at least accomplishes what it's trying to do without mm-hmm. being too fucking stupid. Oh, sure. And yeah. this is teetering on too fucking stupid, but it's not <laughs> jumping over the ledge. Right. Yeah, exactly. There you go. So they have to plug in the CB radio, and this is when they realize that not only is Rusty Nail onto them, but he has Charlotte. Wow. What do you think about this, um, how do you identify bodies monologue he gives? Um... I mean, Rusty Nail gets to do some fun monologues throughout all of this. I usually just tune it out because we're about to get to the rest stop. Oh, and he talks about, like, cutting off fingers, pulling off fingernails, like, doing all this shit. Like, I think it's really creepy. Okay. Yeah. I mean, right. this is very much like we're not sympathizing with this dude anymore because he is full-blown well, mad town. And and, and that's... Mm. That's kind of the issue. And that's where, again, if I'm reading, let's say I'm going to subscribe to this internalized homophobia thing. Yep. Now he's a killer. Then we're dealing with an angry queer killer, right? Yep. So it muddies the waters a bit, but I'm also kind of like, you know what? I get it. Uh, Yeah. Living a life of repression and then having these two shithead kids basically make fun of you. Not cool. I don't think it justifies pulling people's fingernails off or anything. No, no, no. I agree with you. But we're also like, they're also humiliating him on a public radio wave. Right. Yeah. What would have made it even more effective, honestly, for me, is if we heard other truckers snickering at all this. Hmm. Which we don't, which is fine. Right. But again, like, I mean, I'm not saying I think Rusty Nail is queer, but like, again, if I'm going on that, that pathway, like, it makes it a little bit problematic. But I'm also kind of like... Haven't you ever wanted to murder a bully? (laughs) (laughs) Sure. Yeah. I don't know. 
Uh, okay, so they are told that they need to go to a particular rest stop at a particular time, and then the boys are told that they have to go in and order hamburgers naked, and while they do this, Venna pleads with him, and I actually think this is one of Lily Sobieski's best scenes, but again, it's getting overshadowed by the fact that we've got naked Paul Walker and naked Steve Zahn. And this is also something from uh, Mr. Langberg's piece, but he says, Gay panic is certainly in the scene where Rusty Nell humiliates the brothers by forcing them to walk naked into a truck stop diner, as though the ultimate form of degradation is not just to be seen naked, but to be seen naked with another man. Mm-hmm. So he is making them relive the gay panic that he felt that they put upon him. Well, it's interesting, too, because the diner owner actually asked them, is this a frat thing? And yes, that's a very specifically 2001 I mean, frats are not specific to 2001, but this idea that this would be a fraternity hazing thing. And there is a lot of, A, horror movies that take their pranks from sororities and fraternities Mm -hmm. and pranks gone wrong. Go back and listen to our sorority row episode from earlier this year. Or April Fool's Day. (laughs) Yeah, like you're you're often forced into sexually humiliating situations as part of the hazing. Well, and he even says, if this wasn't my bar, I would assume it was a fraternity thing because it's like, oh yeah, because you're in the middle of nowhere. Like, why, mm-hmm. why would this be a fraternity thing? But um, obviously the scene is like, you know, you're watching their two beautiful, gorgeous asses mm-hmm. and it's wonderful. But the implication behind this all is, yeah, like, oh, what could be you worse? walk in naked but I love this constant shots, too, of parents covering their children's eyes yeah. as they walk in here. And again, I'm watching this like, well, is it because they're naked? Because they're covering up their genitals. Mm-hmm. But is it because they're naked or is it because it's two men? You know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, even just the sight of a naked male body. If you think about 2001, where we are not in a position where we're talking about how much we love dick. Right. This is a year after Kevin Bacon shows his dick in Hollow Man and people were like, Burr. like making okay, big okay. deals out of dicks. But but like Kevin Bacon's dick in Hollow Man is like CGI. Infra- I mean, it is really the shape of his penis, but it's like CGI over as opposed to what? Three years earlier when he's in Wild Things showing off his dick. Mm-hmm. But that was yeah. an accident and it's brief and fleeting. I mean. We'll call it an accident in quotation marks. <laughs> I'm just saying, like, in 2001, we were very much not on a crusade for equal opportunity nudity. Right. And, of course, within the world of the film, I mean, you would obviously look if you saw two random dudes walk in naked into a public establishment. Oh, for sure. You would be staring. It would be unusual. But, yeah, there's something to be said for, ooh, it's naked men, and it's a pair of naked men. If I saw these two men walking in naked, it looks like a Bucky's, honestly, is what it looks like. Do you know what a Bucky's is? I do not. Okay, well, Bucky's is a really popular, like, gas station chain um, in the South. Okay. I mean, like, it's enormous, and the interior is, like, imagine, like, a mall, but for <laughs> gas stations. Oh, wow. Okay. That's what this looks like to me. Hmm. But, yeah, it's, um, oh, I would I would look at them. Yes. <laughs> And to be fair, uh, I mean, I'm sure there's plenty of people listening to this episode lamenting the fact that we're not having fun with the movie. And I I mean, part of this is we're trying to do a bit of a more interesting read. But yes, we will acknowledge that for many gay men, this particular scene is iconic and very important to them. Honestly, what I was surprised by was that Steve Zahn has a better ass than Paul Walker. I mean, butts are tough. You can do butt workouts and it doesn't always come together. Maybe it's a height thing. I don't know. Maybe, maybe. 
All right. So in reality, this scene comes to almost nothing because even before they can call the police or get kicked out, Venna's on the horn, they rush out, and she reveals that they have new instructions to go to a cornfield. But for folks who are playing the alternative ending game, this is where it actually begins. I remember I started this and so I, I watched the movie. And I was like, cool, let's go watch these alternate endings. And of course, they had the 29-minute alternate ending. I was like, cool, where does this start? Right here. Mm-hmm. So, everyone, literally the entire third act of this movie... Completely reshot. Completely reshot. Again, as we've said before, multiple times, for the better. Like, yeah. I don't dislike this original ending, but it is definitely missing like the edge-of-your-seat suspense that this final cut gives you. It's got too many moving parts, and we'll talk yeah. about it in a little bit of detail towards the end. But um, yeah, they definitely made the right choice. Yeah, agreed. Okay, so we get this cornfield sequence, which is actually included in this alternative cut, but it comes later. So um, this is when they are chased into the corn by the cab, and it's a lot of different kinds of editing that we've seen, like the car chases are shot in a particular way where we can often see the stunt driving. And I think that's really good. This mm-hmm. is a lot of close-ups and it's dim. It's hard to see where characters are in proximity to one another. And uh, we really don't know when or where Rusty Nail is going to come out of. Yeah. Because the, the, he makes them walk like, what, 100 feet away from the car at some point? Yeah. And then he basically drives straight at them. So that's when yeah. they have to run into the corn. Yeah. <laughs> Which, I mean, they really should have been like, someone hold on to Vanna's hand, for the love of God. Right? Yeah. Or work out some kind of call and answer system so they could find each other a little bit faster. Because Vanna gets abducted, and they can't even figure it out. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, but this is all, you know, cat and mouse kind of chasing yeah. through the corn stuff. It's good. And then we discover that Vanna is gone, so... He blows up the car, and this is when they realize that they need to get to the next town over before midnight and get to room 17, or else Venna will die. And that is all the instructions that they have. And see, doesn't this work so much better? Like, we're replaying off the prank from earlier, Mm -hmm. we're turning it against them, like, blah, 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 blah. And as soon as he goes, oh, if you got some pink champagne, Mm -hmm. that'd be good, too. Like... Yes! I love that he left them a bottle in the car before it blows up, too. It's like, don't forget to grab that bottle, boys. (laughs) I mean, again, like, had he not turned into this DTV, like, fucking boogeyman, like, I actually think Rusty Nail is a really, really good, like, horror icon. Maybe not, icon's probably just not ever word, but, like, a really good villain for horror. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think in part because Ted Levine is doing great voice work and... yeah infusing a lot of malice and even just kind of confident swagger in the way that he laughs and makes fun of them oh like constantly just mocking them (laughs) yes yeah (laughs) so they get to this town and they realize that there's about a half dozen motels so they've got to figure out which motel she's in and which room 17 uh they're running around meanwhile we actually get to see what rusty nail is up to and 
We see that he has set up a jigsaw trap wherein a shotgun will blow Venice's okay. head off if the door is open. I am so glad that you said jigsaw because of while course. I was watching this, I was like, oh my god, Saw, but except three years, four years earlier. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, let's be clear. Saw did not invent the idea no. of a torture chamber kind of trap like Argento's opera did it before this, like all of these other ideas. Well, the, the, the only reason they used saran wrap was because they were like, well, fuck, we can't keep pulling duct tape off of Sobieski's mouth every take because it will literally pull her skin off so it was a practicality thing why they decided to use saran wrap to begin with Mm -hmm. but I will say I find the saran wrap really visually striking Mm -hmm. because we can see her more clearly and again Sobieski is doing really great work I mean it is classic damsel in distress stuff she is crying (laughs) a lot but I really feel for her in this moment no, I, I agree, and it is haunting. Mm-hmm. It is just scary. I just, yeah, I just wish she had more to do than just like look at the barrel of a shotgun. Right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so the boys end up figuring out which motel it is, but then they realize, oh, she's not actually in room seventeen. Of course, she's in room eighteen because that's where we were when yep. we committed the original crime. So Fuller decides that he's going to head around back. So he goes through this alley, which is filled with trash. It is just, <laughs> it is like, let's give as many obstacles and places for someone to hide as possible, which A plus on the production design here. <laughs> yes, yes. So he ends up peering through the back window and he gets a sense of what the danger is, but he is then grabbed through the window by Rusty Nail. And there's uh, like this whole battle where he's kind of getting pulled in, getting scrunched and beaten up. So this suspense here, yeah. So he's getting beaten up. Rusty Nail is like covering his mouth so he cannot call out to Lewis. Yes. While Lewis is like debating opening this door. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And this is where your editing is coming into play, Joe. But like this, this sequence is edited so well. The ha- yeah. I've seen this in theaters. I would have literally been, like, grabbing my friends, like, oh, my fucking God. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. it's edge-of-your-seat stuff because, you know, of course, we're getting shot, like, insert shots of Lewis starting to go for the handle, and Fuller's trying to warn him off, but Rusty Nail's got him by the mouth, and it's all very good. Oh, also, we should note that, uh, so Rusty Nail is played physically by Matthew Kimbrough. So Fuller does actually manage to get the word out to Lewis so he doesn't open the door. And then that's when policemen start to break down the other rooms because they have discovered the body of this poor man who did nothing and was apparently working this motel. (laughs) So Lewis goes around the back because that's where Fuller was and he's not there anymore. He's actually on the other side of this fence and he is hanging on it and he has been impaled through the leg. And this is something that Langberg did not mention in his article, but after reading it and watching the scene, I was like, oh, this feels very Matthew Shepardy. Like, right. I know it's not the same thing because it's not a hate crime, but it's like we have this man tied up to a fence, mm-hmm. like just left to die. Yes. And that to me is like, okay, well, if I didn't like really buy into the whole comparisons to Matthew Shepard before, this really sealed the deal for me. Yeah, and good catch on that because I didn't even think about it. But as soon as you start to think, oh, it's somebody literally left for dead hanging on a fence. Yeah. Well, honestly, the only thing is because in Langbury's piece, he says in the earlier scene with the dead end, like, oh, they meet up against a fence. And I'm like, okay, but yeah, but in this scene, he's literally hanging from a fence. Yeah. 
Yeah, so Lewis discovers him in time. He manages to get him off the fence, but not to remove the object that's impaling him through the leg. So Fuller is still kind of down for the count, but he says, go and get her. Because, of course, at this moment, this is when the police are starting to break down all of the doors again. Fantastically cut in terms of editing. so good. See the number on the door. Bam breaking it open, pulling people out, and you're just, like, watching them get closer, like, 20, 19, and you know, ah, shit. And it's so funny because in my head, I'm like, oh, my God, 17, but in reality, it's 18. So it's like, and (laughs) so I I feel like for some audience members, it's like, oh, when you realize, oh, shit, wait, it's 17, it's 18, oh, my God! (laughs) (laughs) Move faster! (laughs) It's really good. Yeah, so Lewis has to get back over the fence, through the alley, back to room 18. He has to crawl through this window. He manages to get to her just in time to pull her aside so that the shotgun actually does go off, but they have moved out of the way of harm. So the editing here is a little wonky because he's behind her. I think the thing is, like, if he moves her, it's going to pull the trigger, I think. But it just is a thing where the, the cops open the door and then we see the shotgun shoot the ceiling, which this is also what happens in one of the other alternate endings, too. Mm-hmm. When, um, I'm sorry, one of them called Venice saves the day at some point, too. Because <laughs> at some point, because the whole thing where she's like pulling the nails out of the chair or whatever, and she's like, right. she does cut herself free off screen and then right. comes out and like shoots Rusty Nail with a shotgun, okay. which isn't really as good of an ending, by the way. No. But, Yeah, because if not, you just see her working with these pins, but it doesn't seem to come to anything because she still has to be rescued. Uh, I don't see it as if he moves her, the shotgun will go off. I think it's just if the door is opened, because that's the pressure on the trigger. Uh, But see, I I, I read it as like he's trying to time moving her chair with the same time the door opens. Oh, that's so risky. I'm aware. (laughs) No, I disagree with your reading. I don't think it's that. That's fine. It's fine. It's movie magic. (laughs) In either case, Venna is saved, but of course, Fuller is still in danger. So Lewis has to basically tell cops who have their weapons drawn on him. "Uh, I'll be right back. And they end up giving chase as he goes back out the window, back through the alley, over the fence. And Fuller is now more or less going to be run down by Rusty Nail, who has positioned the truck to ram him. These police officers are fucking useless. They still have their guns on Lewis, and they're telling him, like, get your hands up, get your hands up. It's like, I get it. They don't know what's going on. They just see a man who ran from them. But it's like, there's a truck barreling right at you. I will say that I'm fascinated because, again, after doing Sons of the Lambs earlier this year, like, we are in another Ted Levine film. Again, two of two this year. I'm sorry, two of three this year. Mm -hmm. But both of them involve a, is it the right house slash wrong house slash is the right room slash wrong room? Like, we're going to pull the rug out from under you type thing. Ted Levine has a type. He does. (laughs) And, oh, also, Hills Have Eyes, he's burned in a fucking crucifix of a cactus. This is true. Yeah. <laughs> Spoiler alert. I mean, that one's a bit of <laughs> So we do manage to pull Fuller out of the way. The police shoot the truck. It goes barreling through the fence, through the alley, into the motel room, and then it stops. This is when they discover the unconscious body of poor Charlotte in the back and this driver is dead but we never really get to see his face we just see very quickly a close-up of the wristwatch that he's wearing but this poor actress playing Charlotte so you get one scene with Mm -hmm. three lines of dialogue yeah 
and then you gotta come back for this fucking climax just to be like yeah that's it that's my critique it's a we promise we'll get you into the we'll get you into sag because you'll get your three lines of dialogue this will make your career sweetie oh this poor woman this poor character i mean it's i wish there was a way i wish they would have written a script where you didn't need this character because it feels so unnecessary Mm -hmm. yeah but it's the movie we have it's the movie we have yeah so this is more or less the end. This is where we learn that the man in the truck who is supposedly Rusty Nail is actually the driver. This poor ice truck man from yeah. earlier. <laughs> this nice, nice man who literally drove in the middle of like a fucking dirt road to give mm-hmm. them a credit card back. <laughs> yeah, I would not. I would have left that credit card there and be like, he'll come back for it. I I mean, the moral of this movie is if you do good things, you'll die. More or less, yeah. And if you do shit things, you will live. You will die. <laughs> no, they all live. Yeah, that's true. That's true. They will all live. So you'll you'll be attempted to get killed, and then they go. will not yeah. succeed. <laughs> You're fine. Uh, and we finish with Rusty Nail calling them on the ambulance CB radio to, you know, speculate about how a storm washes everything clean. Blah, blah, blah. He's still at their credits. So admittedly, I forgot that it like just smash cuts to black. I do like that Mm -hmm. um, in retrospect. And yeah, I think this is good. I think it's a good way to end it. I do wish Lily Sobieski had more to do. But that being said, like, I think the amount of suspense and like edge of your seat shit we had going on here for the last 20 minutes is Mm -hmm. wonderful. Yeah, it was interesting. I read that apparently at one point they thought that they would end the film not with this, but with the two brothers going home and we would get to meet their parents and it would kind of be like, oh, it's a happy family reunion. I'm very happy we didn't end there. Also, it was going to be a Vina blames them for everything. She leaves, goes home. Rusty Nail follows her home. Oh, God, no. Yeah. And so I was like, you know... On a level, I'm kind of like, I like the idea of taking it past the road. But at the same time, I'm like, but I also appreciate the simplicity of the road. Like, I mean, I think you mentioned road games at the beginning of the episode. But, like, this movie does feel very similar to road games. And it's mm. also how, how you said, oh, when you, you walk into a, a road movie, you think you're going to get one thing and you're not. It's put in two pieces. Yeah. Like, that is very much my experience watching road games. Yeah, um, I'll actually give a shout out to another film that came out in 2019, but it only became domestically available in North America earlier this year called Tailgate or Bumpercleef. It's a Dutch film, but it's another film about road rage. It's like a nuclear family and they're all kind of assholes. That's the big caveat. You have to be Mm -hmm. comfortable with all of the characters that you're quote unquote supposed to like being absolutely abhorrent but this guy ends up pissing off a man who is secretly a serial killer and he gets really pissed off at folks who uh don't obey the laws of the road so the first half of the movie is like classic road rage stuff and then the back half of the film becomes a home invasion film and it's really good Ooh, see hey anything becoming a home invasion film instant sell (laughs) yeah it's really weird it's messed up yeah, it, it's just you have to have a really, really high tolerance for assholes because all of these characters are like, oh, I kind of just want to see you get killed because you're right. the worst. For sure. But big recommend. Yeah. Okay, so do we want to talk briefly about these alternate endings? I mean, look, there's not much here. So, so hey, 
original ending, I, I did like a spark notes of it. So it starts at the diner when Lewis and Fuller are naked. Mm-hmm. Uh, Vin is talking to Rusty Nail in the car. He pulls up behind her. They then, like, she honks the horn. They run after him. They oh get Oh, my in God. Fight. I thought you said you were doing the Cliff Notes version of this. Like, can I try? <laughs> Wait, no. I, it's literally four lines. No, go, you know what? Go ahead. Okay, so they get in a car. They have a near collision with a family. They go to the police station. They track Rusty Nail to a train yard where he has apparently committed suicide. They get Charlotte. She and Venna go away in an ambulance. The brothers go away with Walton Goggins, who is not in the film in any other capacity. Mm -hmm. That's when they realize that Rusty Nail has faked his death, so they have to steal the cop car by force. They find the ambulance, which has been in an accident. They get chased through the cornfield, which is the exact same sequence, only this time it ends when they get to a clearing in front of a water tank, and Fuller shoots the gas tank out, and it goes up in flames. It's very Jaws-y. Like, it's like, oh, Paul Walker's running towards Fuller, and Fuller's, like, shooting the tag, and he's like, move, 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 move. After like, the four <laughs> shot, he finally blows it up. And right. He, he might as well just be like, smile, you son of a bitch. Yeah, basically. Yeah. I didn't mind some of this, but it yeah. feels like there's just so much of it. Like, when we go to the police station, and then we have to do <laughs> 2001 tracking of the cell signal, and then we've got to go to this train yard, and then we've got to have the thing on the road, and then we've got the corn. And I know it wasn't intentional, but do you know what it reminded me of? With the fucking, like, going to the police station, getting a call from Rusty Nail, getting all this shit? It reminded me of the end of Jeepers Creepers. Yeah, yeah. Like, that's exactly how it wouldn't have been played. There's no way to predict that. But like, that, mm-hmm. that is exactly what it reminded me of. I wonder if it's just that's a kind of conventional thing. Like these movies have to try really hard not to get the police involved or you get them involved and then have to immediately kill them off. Maybe. Um, but yeah, then we have another, a re, the first reshoot ending, which is basically the very, very same up until we get to the motel room. Mm-hmm. And we have, as I said earlier, both brothers fighting Rusty Nail on the back. Lewis drives the truck into Rusty Nail while yep. the cops come in and kick down all the doors. Lewis has the truck collapse on Rusty Nail. And then everything else is pretty much the same with Lewis rescuing Venna from the shotgun. But like, he like shoots down the truck that then like collapses on rusty nail basically the ending we got is the only ending in which rusty nail survives this film right which again is not that surprising like they opted to go for the one that's a little bit more open-ended where you get your potential franchise villain go away so that you can bring him back later yeah exactly so i mean uh, these endings are fine fine i will say though that i mean like however much money it costs them this ending that we got is way better than any of those endings. I like the idea of keeping Rusty Nail in his vehicle as well. Like, I don't need to see him as a flesh and blood man who's dragging people through windows, who's getting pinned under wreckage and that kind of stuff. Like, it's it's okay, but I think he's scarier not being seen. But we do get that in the final cut, though. Well, no, I'm saying, like, even that part I don't love. Yeah, yeah, yeah I see what you're saying, yeah. No, that makes sense. But that's Joyride, yeah, Joe. It's Joyride. Do you have any final thoughts on Joyride? I still like this movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's somewhere between a three and a half and a four, depending on yeah. how generous I'm feeling. I think in some ways the gender politics of it have not aged, but we could honestly say that about most of the films from this time period. And it's not so egregious that you're watching it and thinking, oh, this is garbage. It's just more, I took notice that I thought Fuller was kind of a piece of shit, and I didn't think that back in 2001. 
but overall yeah. lots of fun good highway horror i will agree i i i downgraded this from a four and a half to three and a half which i realize is like a pretty big like stark drop mm-hmm. i still really like it it's just like yeah. it, it, there are issues that i have with it yeah but I, I think it's very well crafted, and I, I I think those last 20 minutes make up for most of the issues that I have with it, because it's, it's so fucking well done. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think we're just in a position, too, now where we will not accept women just kind of being introduced so that we can throw them into dangerous situations. Like, right. we want more from that character, and I think that colors our experience a little bit. Imagine how much... I'm going to say more interesting if Vena was their sister. Oh, hmm. Definitely gets away from the problem of like, oh, what boy does she want to kiss? Right? Like, I mean, also, oh, fuck, again, that, that's kind of going into Jupiter's Creepers territory, right? Because it's a brother and sister. But it's still right. like, that to me is more interesting because then you're not worrying about, like, I don't give a shit if these brothers, like, are fighting for the same girl. Mm-hmm. So I think making her a sister would even make it just a... You're not worrying about that. So like, cool, they all they already have a bond that we don't right. have to worry about. Like, it's not oh, a romantic bond. It's a literally a familial bond. Mm-hmm. So I think that would have been really interesting. Yeah, and we've talked before about how much we like sibling relationships in horror films. I think they're a really great foundational relationship that don't mm-hmm. often get explored because people always seem to think that we want smoochies in horror films. Yes, absolutely. So listeners, let us know. What, what do you think? Do you think this would work better if they were all siblings? Or do we like having Venna be the... Uh, damsel in distress. Damsel in distress extra girl. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, man. All right. Well, that is Joyride. Um, before we announce what we're covering next week, well, um, let's just go through our standard housekeeping, Joe. Mm-hmm. If you want to get in touch with us, you can reach us on Twitter and Instagram at Horror Queers and join our Facebook Horror Queers group to hang out with other listeners. You can find us on Letterboxd to keep track of all the films we've covered. And, of course, go look at our YouTube channel to see our Micro Queers recordings. If you have a moment, please rate and review us on your podcatcher of choice. And, as usual, if you want even more Horror Queers content, please support the show by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash horrorqueers. We are in October, finally. So we've got lots of episodes for y'all. We'll be doing episodes on the uh, fourth season of Slasher, Flesh and Blood, which is on Shudder, Midnight Mass, the Netflix-Mike Flanagan collaboration, and of course, an episode on Halloween Kills. And in anticipation of the Chucky series hitting sci-fi, we'll be doing an audio commentary on Child's Play 2, the fun one. (laughs) One I haven't seen. Joe, I am literally... Literally, when working at the schedule with you, you said you hadn't seen that, and I, I almost shit my pants a little bit because I was like, <laughs> "What?" <laughs> Just per your dog did a little bit. It's such a fun movie. Child's Play Two is the tits. No, I'm excited. Uh, yeah, I think it's a really strong Patreon lineup. And just a shout out to the overall massive content that you can get on there. We did pass 137 hours last month, so folks. Even $10, you're getting 137 hours. So that's pretty fucking good. Jesus. Well, that is awesome. But um, yeah, well, I, hey, well, so Joe, I've talked way too much. What mm-hmm. are we talking about next week? <laughs> well, it's funny that you mentioned that we're going to be talking about Halloween Kills on the Patreon, because I feel like I need to refresh my memory before the new film comes out. Oh. So I'm going to propose that we revisit Halloween from 2018. Oh my god, I'm 
excited slash nervous because yeah. I know you are not the biggest fan of this movie, and I nope. I'm an iffy fan of this movie. So we'll see what happens. Yeah, we shall see. I'm actually eager for a revisit because I've only seen the film once. It was under oh. a very specific set of circumstances which made me think I liked the movie. And then I realized over time I didn't like the movie, but I haven't watched it again to see where I've actually settled. Oh, fuck. I didn't know that. I thought you had seen it several times and you still hated it. So you know what? Good for you. (laughs) Until then, on that note, we can cross out Joyride. Indeed. And cross out Horror Queers. 